Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash ZMJ. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Bayer has had no involvement in the selection of the speakers, the development of the activity, the agenda, or the materials. Welcome to this peer voice activity on prostate cancer. This activity comprises a series of five streaming episodes featuring doctors Neil Shore and Nicholas James. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Neil Shore. I'm medical director of Carolina Urologic Research Center and the chief medical officer of Genesis Care US for surgical oncology and urology. I'm very, very happy to be joined today by uh, Professor Nick James, who's from the Institute of Cancer Research and the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. Uh, you know, we saw the first um, radiopharmaceutical introduced a, a little over 10 years ago, that being radium-223. Uh, and this was the first radiopharmaceutical that demonstrated, you know, level one evidence of a survival benefit. I'm going to have Nick weigh in on that a lot in terms of the historical and the contemporaneous issues surrounding radiopharmaceuticals. And how ultimately this guides us in thinking about sequencing other approved therapies, combining therapies. So in these next five episodes, we're going to address these questions and others as well. So Nick, let me ask you, um, in your experience to date, where do you think we're going in terms of the management of radiopharmaceuticals? Some people say it's an either or. Can it be a both and in terms of radium versus a PSMA RLT? Um, well, I think in general, what we're seeing with castrate refractory prostate cancer is, is we're not generally faced with either or questions. We're, we're faced with questions of A then B or B then A. And um, radium and uh, PSMA lutetium have really very distinct modes of action. So there's no particular reason to think you couldn't potentially give both of these agents. And um, I think certainly in the short term, other things are going to be driving choice like price, availability, licensing, distance from centres that are able to administer one or other of these treatments as much as, as the sort of underlying medical decisions. Um, but I think even if you've got unlimited access to both, um, there's no reason as far as I can see why you shouldn't potentially use both, at least in some patients. I think that's a great point. Can you describe for our audience the, the, the key differences in mechanism of action of, of a radium and alpha particle versus PSMA-lutetium. If you look at radium, it's uh, a calcium mimetic, and it's in the same family of the periodic table as calcium, the main mineral in bone. Uh, If you inject intravenous radium chloride, it's taken up into the bones and uh, incorporated predominantly at sites of high bone turnover, which is exactly where the metastases are. So you've got a sort of biological targeted radiotherapy distinct from external beam radiotherapy. The other important feature of radium is that it's an alpha emitter. Now, uh, this is rather akin to firing cannonballs instead of firing bullets. Alpha particles are much more massive than beta particles, which are basically gamma rays. And uh, they therefore are much more likely to hit something before they go too far. So they have a short track length in tissue. So the energy is deposited 
in the bone mets and in the surrounding immediate bone, but not more widely through bone marrow. So you have a much less myelotoxic treatment than strontium and a much more cytotoxic treatment to the cancer cells themselves. Also double-stranded DNA breaks, which you get with alpha particles more frequently than with beta particles, gamma particles, um, are more lethal to cells. They're harder for the cells to repair. So PSMA lutetium is a rather different treatment, and I think you're going to talk us through that, Neil. The advantage of the PSMA-RLTs, radioligand therapies, is that unlike radium-223, it's going to go to soft tissue and visceral metastases. But we have to balance the differences in tolerability, uh, as well as uh, uh, clearly thinking about uh, further you know, real-world evidence and additional uh, long-term safety, secondary malignancies, etc. I mean, I think the main limitation on it is that you have to have PSMA uptake. I guess the question now I have for you, Nick, is, um, you know, how would you think about using uh, radium-223 and, and or lutetium? Let's caveat that question with they're both available, cost isn't an issue, licensure isn't an issue, and you have an MCRPC patient progressing on a novel hormonal agent, may have received a taxane as well, and is bone-predominant disease. There were patients in the vision trial who'd previously received radium, as you say, and I, I can't see in principle why, um, if you've got adequate marrow reserve remaining, um, you, why you shouldn't go on to give PSMA lutetium or vice versa. Um, it gives people subsequently radium after PSMA lutetium, but obviously it depends where you position all of these in the pathway. They've got distinct mechanisms of action, distinct targets. And um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, we, we would envisage using both and carrying on using both. Um, uh, and um, uh, the data, such as we have it from vision, appears to suggest that uh, it doesn't restrict your subsequent treatment choices having PSMA lutetium. And it, we know already from experience, it doesn't restrict our subsequent choices giving radium. We can go on to give further chemo, for example. To me, it's all about making sure we give patients the opportunity to be sequenced appropriately and have that all-important you know, physician-patient-shared decision-making. Okay, great. Well, now let's go to the next episode. Um, so we've talked about the what and when for you know radium-223 versus a PSMA radioligand therapy or what some would call PSMA-RLT, the most likely one to get first approval being lutetium-617. Um, now let's talk further about what the goals of, of therapy are. I, I think many of our colleagues think of uh, radiopharmaceuticals as being palliative and, and save them towards the very end. Uh, I'd love for you to please comment on that, Nick. Um, none of the treatments that we use for castrate refractory prostate cancer um, are curative. So in one sense, they can all be regarded as palliative. And we know that for all of the active treatments, the taxanes, uh, the various um, androgen receptor pathway drugs, and so on, um, they all improve your quality of life. They all reduce your symptoms. So they are all ways of palliating symptoms from men with advanced prostate cancer, and they also make you live longer. Um, uh, with strontium and samarium, they were essentially trialed as palliative therapies. They were trialed as ways of reducing bone pain. 
And they weren't really, I don't think, ever properly tested to see if they produced a survival advantage. Um, now, radium was tested in a trial aimed at showing improved survival, and, and it did indeed show improved survival. There's a number of reasons why radium should be a better treatment. Um, but I think fundamentally, it's not qualitatively different from docetaxel or abiraterone or enzalutamide. They're all doing the same thing. They're all killing cancer cells with the aim of prolonging survival and improving quality of life. Yeah, a great point. I think the thing that was so interesting to me about the Alsimka trial was the design, which I found to be very innovative. Uh, it included both patients who were either um, ineligible or refused a taxane or patients who had progressed after um, taxane therapy. The best standard of care control arm allowed for uh, the use of steroids, estrogens, even an a, 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 a androgen biosynthesis inhibitor such as ketoconazole. So I think it was really interesting, Nick, in the Alsimka trial um, yeah. that there was a 3.6 um, uh, median OS hazard ratio of 0.7. Interestingly, when you look at the pre-chemotherapy versus post-chemotherapy, a, a nice paper published by Hoskins in Lancet Oncology, that the pre-chemotherapy median OS is 4.6 months, the post-chemotherapy is a 3.1 month. Not dramatically surprising given the, the tumor burden and the biology of the disease. And when we review the adverse events, uh, especially the grade three fours are really quite minimal uh, with radium and the quality of life scores have been presented and uh, upwards of 10 years of data now um, in terms of uh, the PSMA lutetium trial, obviously a much more recent trial, which I, th I think you're going to go through the design of. Sure, thank you. Patients were randomized to receive uh, upwards of six infusions of, of lutetium 617 uh, versus a, a standard of care that excluded the use of, of chemotherapy and radium 223 or investigational drugs, the typical important endpoints of, of OS and RPFS. And clearly, it hit its uh, endpoint. These were patients who were heavily pretreated, who had a significant tumor burden, and really nice to see the separation of the curves pretty early on. Uh, this was very impressive, a hazard ratio of 0.62. But if we look at the adverse events, the percentages of the grade three fours, fortunately, are pretty pretty low. You see more on the grade one two in terms of dryness of the mouth or loss of taste. But overall, I think a, a well-tolerated therapy, what we do need to be very cognizant of as we take care of patients for longer is making sure we maintain their bone marrow integrity. Uh, but again, I'd love to hear your thoughts and, and your experience because you, you've had a great experience at the Marsden. Um, the toxicity, as you say, is, is, is different to the, um, to the radium toxicity, reflecting the fact that the PSMA will be more widely distributed. You're likely to see more bet mets in bone with PSMA than you would with a bone isotope uh, scan. So you'll see more bone targeting, and because it's a gamma, not a alpha. Um, the renal effects are something that um, aren't particularly significant in this end-stage population in the majority, but we are concerned about what effects we might see long-term on renal function from the radiation if you give it and then patients live for years. So I think this is something we need to be aware of as we inevitably will 
shoved the treatment earlier into the disease course into better patients? Uh, undoubtedly, radiopharmaceuticals are now having a really significant impact on the outcomes for our patients, uh, demonstrating a robust survival impact uh, and overall very good tolerability. In North America, there's data that I've seen that suggests that patients will die with receiving only 1.7 uh, life prolonging level one evidence, uh, advanced prostate cancer treatments. And now we have to do better. Uh, the radiopharmaceutical uh, uh, opportunities in conjunction with the other distinct novel mechanisms of action is really revolutionizing the quality of care we can offer patients in 2022. Thank you. Well, hello, everybody, and, and welcome to episode three, entitled, uh, If PSA Doesn't Respond, Is a Therapeutic Benefit Lost? So this is a big issue. Let me turn it right over to you. You know, we, we call PSA, sometimes euphemistically we say it stands for patient or physician-stimulated anxiety. Um, you know, how do you address this notion around PSA with your patients and, and when you teach residents, fellows, junior faculty? Yes, thank you. So I think that there's two education tasks to be done here. I think one is with the residents, but the other is actually with the patients themselves. So uh, as you rightly say, patients get very hooked onto their PSA results and you can understand why um, and often will overinterpret them. And I think in a nutshell, I think PSA should in the main be viewed as a tool for deciding when you do imaging. And in general, I wouldn't make very many therapeutic decisions based solely on PSA changes. I almost always be driven by changes in imaging. And if the imaging is not changing, whatever the PSA is doing, um, I will generally not change the patient's treatment. And I think this is particularly important as you get to the later stages of the disease, because the PSA will often uncouple itself from the disease responses, particularly in the context of radium, only the bone disease is being targeted. So if you've got lymph node disease slowly growing away in the background, this may not cause the patients any harm, but it may put the PSA up. But also alkaline phosphatase is a very useful marker in this context because if, if your bone disease is responding, generally your bone alkaline phosphatase will drop. So I think if the alphos is dropping and the imaging is looking fine or improving, um, then uh, whatever the PSA is doing, I'll ignore it. If the um, alphos is going up um, as well as the PSA, that's really when you need to um, have the alarm bells ringing that things aren't working. I think the other point to make that's very important with um, uh, in this context is uh, bone protecting agents as well. So you have to make sure you're protecting that with osteoporosis levels of either bisphosphonates or drugs like denosumab. Yeah, I fully agree with all of your points. And you're absolutely right. It's re-educating our patients to say, wait a minute, there's more than just one biomarker PSA. I love the, the data that's been out there on ALP and LDH and how we can use that to, yeah. uh, to reassure patients that it's okay to continue the course of therapy. Yeah, a further point I'd want to make around imaging, actually, is that, of course, with a, with a bone, isotope bone scan, what you're looking at is the bone's reaction to the cancer. You're not looking at the cancer. 
And um, so if you get a response in the cancer, the bone is now able to heal itself. You'll see an increase in, in bone activity around the tumor deposits. It's called the so-called flare phenomenon. And um, it's, it's an artifact of the way that you're imaging it. It's important to be aware of this because you may end up stopping treatment in a patient who is actually responding if you're not aware that the flare phenomenon exists. So I think you should be imaging with a different modality to your therapy. And I, and I think in this context, if you have access to it, it's worth thinking about things like whole body MRI. If you're not sure what's happening, I, I appreciate it's not a widely available thing and it's very consuming of radiology time. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly worth considering. In summary, um, you know, it's not just about the PSA, but PSA is extremely important. We, we use it, we understand it. But uh, we can use other markers, uh, ALP, alkaline phosphatase, LDH. Most importantly is the patient's clinically benefiting from therapy and very importantly, uh, utilizing the imaging that is most accessible to you to confirm that there are no new lesions, understanding the possibility of the flare phenomenon. So um, with that, I think that brings us to um, uh, episode Four. Uh, here we are in episode four today. Uh, is bone health compromised with radionuclide therapy? Prostate uh, adenocarcinoma cells love the bone microenvironment. More than any other tumor stream, uh, uh, prostate adenocarcinoma cells like to, to take up uh, 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 as their host land, going from the homeland of the prostate, the host land becomes bone. Of course, prostate cancer can go to, to the viscera, lung, liver, brain, and soft tissue, but really enjoy going to bone more than any other tumor stream. Um, and, and so how do we think about um, the potential uh, for uh, safety and tolerability? Uh, what do we know now about radium-223 versus when it was first approved nearly uh, 10 years ago. Yes, well, I think the, the most important thing is that often you end up having to relearn things that you actually already knew. And I think the, so one of the features um, driven by trials, amongst other things, Stampede, but obviously all of the other hormone-sensitive prostate cancer trials, is that we are driving survival up and up and up. So when we started Stampede, average survival of metastatic disease was about three years. Now, if you've got, particularly if you've got low volume disease, which is about half the total, you can expect to live seven to 10 years with metastatic disease. And because you're starting off with a low disease burden, you, your skeleton is largely therefore normal. And um, so you have to be very aware that the treatments we're using, just standard hormone therapy, and then if you intensify the androgen blockade, which we will do inevitably in almost all patients now, either up front or on relapse, and then you hit the bone a bit more with chemo, all of these things are damaging bone. So you can expect to see um, bone fragility fractures um, partly as a product of the treatments. The uh, striking thing in the ERA 223 trial was um, a very high rate of fractures in the dual, dual therapy arm. And what this illustrates is that um, drugs like abrasrone are probably radiosensitizers and you're getting high uptake in the bone and uh, 
with, with the radium, plus you're getting the abrasion, and your radius sensitizing damage to normal bone. And this was manifest in a very high number of um, fractures in the combination therapy groups compared to the control group. Almost all the fractures occurred in the patients who were not on background bone protection on abrasion. And I think it had previously been assumed that drugs like zeledronate were licensed to prevent skeletal events and that drugs like abrasion prevents them much more effectively by treating the disease better. But zeledronate also, and related bisphosphonates and drugs like denosumab, all also improve your underlying bone health. And we've kind of forgotten that, and we need to re-remember it, and we need to look after patients' normal bones, as well as trying to treat the cancer in the bones. I think these are excellent points, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't have any patients that I don't always try to check the box and see, regardless of their um, uh, uh, advanced uh, prostate cancer sensitive or uh, resistant therapy, that they are on some form of an appropriate bone health agent. I, I think one of the nuances of the ERA-223 and even the PEACE-3 ongoing trial, similar trial designed to the ERA-223, but you know, exchanging enzalutamide for abiraterone, acetate, and prednisone, in those two trials, it's concomitant use of the oral um, androgen receptor pathway and radium. We did two phase two studies, much smaller numbers, where we uh, layered in the therapy. In other words, the patients were on um, uh, either Abby or Enza for you know 60 to 90 days to avoid and, and allow for the flare phenomenon and potentially yeah. some reestablishing of the bone dynamic before giving the radium. We didn't see an, any particular increase in the fracture rate, especially for the patients who were receiving a bone health agent. So this notion around layering versus concomitant or concurrent therapy I think still needs to be further explored. We await now for the PEACE 3 results has clearly demonstrated your earlier point that a bone health agent is absolutely essential. Uh, do you have any preferences uh, in terms of your clinic in how you think about a bisphosphonate over a ranglagen monoclonal antibody such as denosumab? All of these agents work so well, I don't think it really matters. I, our, our practice at the Marsden is to recommend that all patients are on a bisphosphonate. We generally recommend alandronic acid, which is a, or once weekly, purely on cost grounds, um, plus calcium and vitamin D. Uh, Weight-bearing exercise will obviously protect the bones and is just generally good for you. So I think this is something we should always be re recommending as good practice for patients, because I think patients often worry that, oh, you should take it easy, you've got advanced cancer. And There's all different forms of exercise that sure. can, can, be, can be encouraged even if it doesn't extend survival, which hopefully further data will show, it certainly maintains quality of life. All these different agents that we have now, AR targeting agents, taxanes, P uh, RLTs, PSMA directed, whether they're uh, alpha, beta, or combination in the future, uh, a, a, a pure radio a pharmaceutical such as radium-223, PARP inhibitors, we must be very, very judicious stewards of bone health because at the end of the day we want to avoid fractures we want to avoid myelosuppression absolutely all right well fantastic let's go to um uh, uh episode five hello everybody this is uh episode five 
Uh, and our title for this is Does Addressing the Myths of Radiotherapy Help Define Its Place in Modern Medicine for Men with Metastatic Prostate Cancer? You know, we use words sometimes um, and we forget how they impact patients and their families when we say chemotherapy or uh, oncolytic therapy or immunotherapy. Or, and here we're going to just really focus on the, the use of the word radiopharmaceutical agent or what sometimes we're calling liquid radiation. Nick, with all the great work that you've done over the years and all the key trials that you've been, you know, shepherding through Stampede and Alsimka and others, how have you, how has your, your nomenclature, your verbiage, um, has it changed at all around the use of radiopharmaceutical? Well, yes, I think so. I think back when I started out in practice, um, it, 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 so long ago that strontium was pretty much the only treatment you could prescribe for men with what was then called hormone refractory prostate cancer. It was, it was around pre-chemotherapy, of course. And that was very much a palliative treatment, um, back to our earlier discussions. And I think it was palliative for two reasons. One is that men tend to get it very late on. So it, it was probably too late to do much about their survival. But secondly, it just wasn't actually a very good treatment either. Uh, it was quite toxic to normal bone marrow and and relatively non-toxic to the cancer uh, in terms of having an effect. Now, um, what we're faced with is is really as you said in an earlier session, an embarrassment of riches relative to how we were when, uh, certainly when I started my career, um, uh, with a whole range of different classes of active therapy with more appearing, particularly radioisotope uh, ligand therapy and um, uh, PARP inhibitors. Uh, although the, some people may think of radium in the same way as drugs like strontium and, and potentially they may think of PSMA lutetium in the same way, it's probably more correct to think of them in the same way as you think of chemotherapy or new generation, if you like, hormone therapies, the AR targeting drugs, as drugs that will are active against the disease directly and will improve your survival, improve your quality of life. And the, the question then becomes, what's the optimal way to sequence them? And there is no single optimal way to sequence these things. Different things suit different patients. And we have to be physicians and tailor our choices to the patient in front of us and not have a cookbook that says this is one size that fits all. Your point is well taken. You know, this is the, the, the massive unmet need that MCRPC is a terminal disease unless the patient succumbs to, you know, a, a cardiovascular event or something else that's not related to the prostate cancer. So, this is why I think we'll never retire. We'll keep going and there'll be multiple more arms to stampede in, 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 in the future. Yes, I very much hope so. The um, Interestingly, just to kind of contradict myself uh, slightly, the, the latest round of data we brought out from Stampede, which was in the high-risk M0 setting, so these are patients with pelvic load positivity or very high PSAs and high Gleason's and T3-4 disease. What we saw in our very recently published data from Stampede was with abrashone plus or minus enzalutamide, was that we saw that just two years of abrashone in that setting um, uh, halved prostate cancer-specific mortality. And um, what we saw in those patients, just to your point about patients die of heart attacks, was that there was a big excess of deaths 
from non-prostate cancer causes with longer follow-up in that. So for some men, they are kind of functionally cured, but for sure, we, there is still scope for doing better. Um, and uh, we're not curing the majority of men with castrate refractory disease, for sure. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, but then always try to reassure them, given all this, this you know, plethora of advancements in, in prolonging survival, preserving their quality of life, preventing complications from therapy, is to say, look, this we're going to make try as best we can to make this a chronic disease, much like hypertension or diabetes, and that you'll ultimately succumb to you know old age, which is a, a typically a euphemism for cardiovascular death. It, it, it's sort of like we're we're, we're in a, a a challenge match with our cardiology colleagues. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for um, your, your, your thoughts on the radio pharmaceuticals and how they've evolved over time uh, and yep. the importance of uh, uh, how we need to think about using uh, the radio pharmaceuticals and really focusing on bone protection while we do it. So a, a great and, and excellent um, summation. Thank you, Nick. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.